Hey, welcome back to the journal feed. My name is Nick Zelt, and this is the only place to be spoon-fed the latest and greatest of emergency medicine. Here, our team combs through literature for the best articles so that you don't have to, and then we provide expert summaries no bigger than a spoonful so that you can keep up with the ever-changing landscape of acute care medicine. Here now, let's take a quick look ahead at everything that we're going to be covering this week. First off, pre-hospital TXA for TBIs. Then, EMS strategies for out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. After that, we'll be looking into spotting a tricky airway in kids. Then, emergency department boarding. And finally, a balancing act between the years criteria and age-adjusted D-dimers. This, of course, is the audio version of the past week summaries, which this week were brought to you by the Honorable Kevin Stouffer, Aaron Lacey, and Clay Smith. So, without further ado, here's the first article titled Effect of -of Out-of-Hospital Transexemic Acid versus Placebo on Six-Month Functional Neurological Outcomes in Patients with Moderate or Severe Traumatic Brain Injuries out of the JAMA. When bleeding is the problem, we've got to at least try TXA in some study or another. I mean, come on, guys, it's kind of like our go-to here. So from the CRASH-2 trial using TXA, they showed that there was a lower mortality in bleeding trauma patients. Then the CRASH-3 trial went on to show a slight 28-day mortality benefit in traumatic brain injury patients with GCS over 8, especially when the TXA was given early. So along those same lines, these authors wondered what the benefit might be for giving TXA in the pre-hospital setting for traumatic brain injuries. So what they did was a multi-center, multifactorial RCT with 966 patients aged 15 years or more who had a GCS less than 13 and without hypotension. And then they divided them into three study groups. The first group got TXA, a one gram bolus, pre-hospital, and then another gram over eight hours in the hospital. The next group got sort of a front-loading, where they got two grams of TXA pre-hospital and then a placebo for eight hours in hospital. And then the last group just got a placebo. For the primary outcome of favorable neurological outcomes at six months, there was no benefit to the combined TXA groups versus placebo at 65% versus 62% respectively, with just an adjusted difference of 3.5%. On top of that, there wasn't a difference in anything else either, really. There was no benefit to 28-day mortality or any of the secondary outcomes. Though, nicely, there didn't seem to be any harm either. There was no seizures and no thrombi. Now, the issues with this study, of course there are some, is that there was a large loss to follow-up at six months, with 15% of patients who were unavailable. As well, GCS might have been depressed due to the injury, but also there are a lot of other factors that can, you know, factor into that, such as intoxication can play a role. On top of that, only 58% of patients actually had intracranial hemorrhages, and that might have sort of muted the effect of TXA. Anyways, in a spoonful, pre-hospital TXA in this study did not show a benefit for moderate to severe traumatic brain injuries. Now, onto the second article titled Association of Intra-Arrest Transport versus Continued On-Scene Resuscitation with Survival to Hospital Discharge Among Patients with Out-of-Hospital Cardiac Arrest, again out of the JAMA. Prompt, prim, and proper management of cardiac arrest is super important. After all, they're arresting, so without this, they're really not likely to survive. So in order to get this done as quickly as possible, there's a lot of management that goes on prior to their arrival in the hospital by our lovely EMS teams. Studying the best way for pre-hospital care to be managed has been quite difficult, though, because there's a lot of heterogeneity in practice in the United States. So the best amount of time to spend on scene before opting to rush them out to the hospital, where there are more resources and more personnel, isn't really known. 
This was a prospective cohort study of a North American consortium that included 43 adult patients with non-traumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest. And the primary outcome was survival to discharge in those who received intra-arrest transport compared to those who received seen resuscitation. The secondary outcome was neurological status at discharge. Here they use a cutoff of a modified Rankin score less than 3, so patients had to be able to walk with assistance. There was not randomization in this trial because there was a large sample size and previously established EMS criteria. But confounders such as initial cardiac rhythm, EMS level of care, time to ROSC, location of the patient, and resuscitation duration were all controlled for. Also, a time-matched propensity score was used to adjust for the fact that patients who do not achieve ROSC on scene are often transported after a long resuscitation duration. Anyways, all in all, they found that scene resuscitation was associated with a significant increase in survival to discharge at 8.5% versus 4% for intra-arrest transport, more than doubling the survival. Also, the secondary outcome of neurological status was significantly better with the scene resuscitation group at 7.1% against 2.9% in the intra-arrest transport group. So really, our EMS colleagues are doing a really good job. They have the tools and the skills to save lives. This data justifies doing an RCT so that we can properly plan for these outcomes. In a spoonful, in patients with atraumatic out-of-hospital cardiac arrest, intra-arrest transport was associated with lower survival to discharge and less favorable neurological outcomes compared with scene management. Another third article, titled Identification of the Physiologically Difficult Airway in the Pediatric Emergency Department out of the Journal of Academic Emergency Medicine. Intubation can be a difficult time. Even simple intubations in the pediatric populations can be kind of stressful. We already know that we can maximize our chances of success by adjusting everything that's under our control, like positioning, having the best equipment on hand, and then of course perfecting your technique. But all of that only really works to help with the anatomically difficult airway. And there are physiological factors that may wreak havoc in intubation and predispose to peri-intubation arrest. We know already that hypoxemia in children under one year old increases the risk of peri-intubation arrest. What else might be playing a role? To find out, the authors did a retrospective cohort study at a large single institution with patients 21 years or less who had tracheal intubation in the shock trauma suite of the emergency department. Using a literature review, expert opinion, and a review of institutional cases, high-risk criteria were established. Those criteria were hypotension, persistent hypoxemia with an SpO2 less than 90%, severe metabolic acidosis with a pH less than 7.1, concern for cardiac dysfunction, status asthmaticus, and being post-ROSC. The primary outcome of the study was peri-intubation cardiac arrest within 10 minutes of tracheal intubation. These arrests occurred in 5.6% of the study population who met one or more of the high-risk criteria, and none, literally 0%, occurred in those who did not meet any of these criteria. These secondary outcomes were also significant. In-hospital mortality was 25% in the high-risk group and only 2.3% in the group without high-risk factors. ECMO activation was also more common at 8.3% instead of 0 and there was a 9% lower chance of first-pass intubation success if they had high-risk criteria. There was 66% chance if there was no criteria, and a 47% chance if they were high-risk. This study really serves as a nice stepping-off point, identifying what look like promising criteria, which may now be validated prospectively and hopefully prove to be of some usefulness. In a spoonful, for children who met high-risk criteria, 
In this study, those were again hypotension, persistent hypoxemia, concern for cardiac dysfunction, severe metabolic acidosis, status asthmaticus, and post-ROSC, there was a significantly higher risk of peri-intubation cardiac arrest. Next, the fourth article, titled Boarding of Critically Ill Patients in the Emergency Department out of the Journal of Critical Care Medicine. I really like the name of this, Emergency Department Boarding. It makes it sound like we're at some lousy worksite accommodations or something. And unfortunately, lousy is exactly what it is because there's a lot of harm done to patients by this. Trends of recent years have been towards more critically ill patients presenting to the emergency department, and there's been a really slow systemic adaptation to this, which explains why we're not really getting that much better. For this paper, a task force set out to answer three questions related to boarding of critically ill patients in U.S. emergency departments. A mix of 18 retrospective and prospective studies were used to find those answers. The first question is how big a problem is this? At what frequency are critically ill patients boarding in the emergency department? Hard to answer, honestly. There's no universal definition of emergency department boarding, with incident rates ranging from 2% all the way up to 87%. But we do see that from 2006 to 2014, emergency department visits by critically ill patients increased by 80%, and that intubated patients in the emergency department increased by 16%. So over 25,000 patients a year receive mechanical ventilation in the emergency department with a mean length of stay of three hours. Was what are the outcomes associated with critically ill patients boarding in the emergency department? Safe to say it's really not associated with anything good. We see longer durations on ventilators, longer ICU stays, higher mortalities, and a four-fold increase in the probability of poor neurological recovery in stroke patients. Not great. So these critically ill patients clearly aren't being ideally cared for. And unfortunately, this also affects all the other patients who are secondarily not receiving as much resources as should probably be given to them either. Now, the final question, what can be done to decrease the impact this has on these patients? We'll start with what we can do in the emergency department, and that is to improve our management of pain, ventilators, more frequent hemodynamic assessments, and then constantly working on infection prevention. All of the things that our patients are kind of missing by being in the emergency department and not in an ICU. Models to predict when a surge might happen based on hospital factors can also be very useful for trying to plan ahead. Next, we have some things at the hospital level. ICU alert teams have been deployed in emergency departments for taking care of ICU patients in many centers. Also, good interdepartmental collaboration to help move patients from one ICU setting to another has to be prioritized. Another thing that has to be prioritized is placement of ICU patients when they're being transferred to the wards. And then we'd like to improve turnover in the wards, and a nice way to do this is the implementation of discharge waiting rooms, where patients can stay while they're ready to leave, but their paperwork, prescriptions, and transport haven't yet been finalized. Again, for hospital management, there's also things like step-down units, so kind of like diet ICUs, which are for sick patients who aren't actively crashing in order to free up more ICU beds. Lastly, there's implementation of emergency department resuscitative care units, Several centers across the U.S. have put in critical care units within the emergency department to directly address the fact that there is critically ill patients who are boarding there. Some data has shown this to be effective as well. One observational trial showed a 15% reduction in risk-adjusted 30-day mortality among these patients, as well as a reduction in hospital and 24-hour mortalities. 
ICU admissions in this study also fell by 13% overall, with less 24-hour ICU admissions, which fell by 37%. Overall, patients received ICU care faster, but we'd still like to see other studies on this topic. All in all, our own author, Aaron, makes an excellent point, and that this problem is not a personal failing on anyone's count, but rather a systemic failing. In a spoonful, boarding of critically ill patients in the emergency department is common and associated with worse outcomes pretty much across the board. This won't be an easy problem to fix, but it's one that deserves our attention. And lastly, the fifth article, titled External Validation of the Year's Diagnostic Algorithm for Suspected Pulmonary Embolism, out of the Journal of Thrombosis and Hemostasis. We're back with PE Risk Tool Talk. And this is not meant to make things more complicated, but it's still worth listening to since it's important to know how these tools can fall short. The year's criteria, which of course can be found on MDCalc, have been shown to actually be quite safe. If patients lack all three of these things, those are PE is the most likely diagnosis, hemoptysis, and signs of DVT, then they are allowed a D-dimer as high as 1,000 before PE is no longer excluded. However in, this, however, in this external validation study, they found that maybe there should be a caveat to this. This study used data from three prior outpatient PE studies, totaling about 3,300 patients with a prevalence of 22% for PE, and then applied the year's criteria post hoc. If the year's criteria had been applied to these patients when they presented to the hospital, 43% of these patients would have had PE excluded with no imaging. But there were 17 patients with VTEs that would have been missed, and all of them had zero years criteria in D-dimers that were less than 1,000. So if you consider these patients through a slightly different lens, though, you'll see that all 17 of them had D-dimers that were still above their age-adjusted cutoffs. So big picture, these authors are offering a caveat that you should give a little bit more attention to this subgroup of patients, and those are those who have zero years criteria D-dimers less than 1,000, but higher than their age-adjusted cutoff. Modifying the year's criteria for this might even be effective and a good idea, but we'll need another study for that. Now, in a spoonful, the year's criteria were safe and would have saved a lot of imaging in this retrospective validation study, but it would have also missed 17 PEs, all of whom had no year's criteria and D-dimers less than 1,000, though there was still a chance to pick them up since they all had D-dimers above their age-adjusted cutoffs. Now then, that's it for the big summaries. So you pretty much already earned CME credits. Let's be honest, guys. Now, if you'd like to claim them, you can head over to our website at journalfeed.org where we have all the details for that if you'd like them. Now we'll do a quick recap of everything that we covered today. First, TXA for bad head trauma, even when given early, did not seem to help. Next, out-of-hospital cardiac arrest might be best treated on scene. Transporting during the arrest was actually associated with worse outcomes. After that, a study found a list of promising criteria to perhaps better define pediatric patients at high risk for peri-intubation cardiac arrest. Then, boarding of critically ill patients in the emergency department is a serious issue and one that strongly decreases patient care and has worse outcomes. And lastly, the year's criteria are safe, but maybe a small adjustment could be made to them. So, links to all the articles summarized can be found, of course, at journalfeed.org, where if you haven't already, you can subscribe to our newsletter and get daily spoon feeds through your email. Our goal here is to provide better patient care through spoon feeding, and so we're trying to help you keep up with the latest research one spoonful at a time. Thank you very much. <laughs>